So while we're doing that, a little bit of uh, just housekeeping. You may notice that today I'm going to attempt to use a headset microphone. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if, why you're clapping, but uh, um, <laughs> so you might want to pray about that because this thing, God has given me many blessings in life. Earlobes are not one of them. We all have our cross to bear. And so I don't do well with these, but we'll see how it goes. Well, we have much to talk about today. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles, on your app or on your lap, whatever, to Revelation chapter 6, as we continue our Lion's Roar series on the book of Revelation. And I want to take time, as I always do, probably more so than I should, I am well aware of that, to review where we've been. I want us to remember that we are taking time to go through this book in the same way we would take time to go through the Gospels or through the Torah. And as we go through the revelation of Jesus Christ or the final Gospel of Jesus Christ, we're seeking to learn three things. The first is, what does it mean to seek the kingdom of God as a disciple of Yeshua? The second is, what does it mean to seek his righteousness as a disciple of Yeshua. The third thing is, what does the revelation reveal about how to be a victorious disciple of Jesus Christ? Now, before we pray and open our hearts and minds in this moment to allow the Holy Spirit to reveal what he wants us to hear, there are a couple key definitions that are essential to our understanding that I just keep looping back to and I'm going to keep doing it. Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. When Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God, he is not speaking just about a future kingdom, but a present reality that they are experienced because the king is in their presence. They are experiencing the power of the kingdom because the king is walking amongst them. The kingdom has drawn near. And because he's brought it near, we have the opportunity to reach out and participate. And by participating in it, we become, have the opportunity to not only encounter the manifestation of God's presence, but also to become a vehicle of God's presence in our lives and to experience that power. And I've come to a place in my life where I want whatever it takes to experience his presence and to experience his power in my life, even if that means through the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Seeking his kingdom, please hear this definition. Seeking his kingdom is seeking his presence and experiencing his power. And that's why we're studying the lion's roar. That's why we're studying the revelation. Not just so that we can have an eschatology of the end times, but so I know how to pick up and carry on today. So that I know how to face tomorrow as a kingdom seeker. The second thing that I would remind you is that seeking his righteousness is, seeking, is, is not looking for something that he's hidden from us, but it is seeking that which he has already decided to give and to provide those who receive the one whom he sent, namely Jesus Christ. As I've said so many times, righteousness always involves giving. 
And Jesus is God's answer to the original lie that he was a selfish, taking, and keeping God instead of a selfless, loving, giving Heavenly Father. So seeking the kingdom means seeking his, seeking his kingdom is seeking his presence and his experience and his power. Seeking his righteousness is seeking and trusting him for all that he has provided for me in Jesus. Which means I'm not seeking something that has yet to be revealed. I am seeking something that he has already promised to provide and has already brought within arm's reach. Now, as we hear what the Spirit is saying to us, we need to also be asking ourselves, is that the passionate pursuit, is the, is the passionate pursuit of his kingdom and his righteousness the driving force in my life? As I come to this final gospel, as I come to the revelation of Jesus Christ, is my passion to try to figure out a mystery before somebody else about when something happens, or is it to be equipped and prepared to walk in faithfulness as a manifestation of his kingdom presence and power and a person that is equipped to do the kingdom, which is doing righteousness? Is that my passion? Well, that's my passion in this series. And I'm asking, oh, we're going to ask some really tough questions today. It's going to get all kinds of uncomfortable. This message may get to the heart and nitty-gritty of this, this topic more than any I've ever preached. So having said that, let's pray. Let's not listen to Brent pray. Let's pray. Lord God, in this moment, in this place, in this time, sanctified on this Sabbath to you, we have come together as your body, as your family, to hear your voice, to seek your presence, and to listen for what the Spirit longs to say, is saying, has been saying to the church. Lord, take us into places in our hearts and minds, even if they are uncomfortable for us. Take us there anyway. Teach us to be kingdom seekers. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So we turn again to Revelation 6 to continue to embrace the revelation it teaches about his kingdom. Two weeks ago, I began to show you a bridge between Matthew chapter 6, uh, the Lord's Prayer, what probably I'm going to be start referring to as the kingdom prayer, I think it's more accurate, and Revelation 6, the breaking of the seal. So I want to backtrack and just remind you of that. Because I took a break, I, was, I didn't speak last week, and we'll, I think providentially, I, I think I had the reason why I made that decision. God had a completely other reason for why we put that message off to today, and we'll get to that. But first remember that as Jesus begins to break the seals in the context of the revelation, it is in the context of, a, of the prayers of the righteous being heard in heaven. After Jesus takes the book from the right hand of the eternal one, John immediately sees the 24 elders and the four living beings, and he sees them holding two things. The first thing he sees them holding are harps. Now, we talked about this, you know, David's psalms 
Uh, there's all sorts of kind of traditions about how the harp was used, how the how the, the it would he'd hang the harp in his window, and the wind, the spirit would blow through it at night, and that's how he got it. There's all sorts of Jewish traditions about that. But basically, David's psalms are his prayers and his praise were composed on a harp. Now, I want to just stop right here and, 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 and ask you not to do something. I know that when we're little kids, we see all kinds of cartoon imagery of things that we see in the Bible. And unfortunately, the whole relationship between an angel and a harp kind of gets trivialized in those cartoons. Am I right? I mean, it's just, it's like, oh, angels and harps, and we kind of hear that, and it kind of becomes this, this cartoonish kind of thing in our head. But this is no cartoon. The 24 elders and the four living beings are holding harps, and this is very, very significant because it is saying something about what is being presented before God. Our prayers and our praise have ascended, and they have been heard. Our worship does not fall on deaf ears. The second thing that we see them holding are golden bowls full of incense, which we just sang about, which are the prayers of the saints. At the moment when Jesus takes the book, all of these things are presented to him. We are literally watching a heavenly prayer and praise service, and what is shown to us so that we understand as the sanctified ones, that what we do on earth in regard to our prayer and our praise matters in heaven. In fact, James wrote, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And Revelation chapter 5 shows you that because the 24 elders and the four living beings have something to offer before the Lamb. They are the prayers of the righteous. But that raises a question. What is a righteous person? Is he saying that only those who have reached moral perfection will be heard in heaven? Uh, you don't need to raise your hand for this, but uh, have you ever had a tough time getting back into your prayer life because you allowed your mind to go somewhere carnal and then felt like you were no longer worthy to enter his presence? I mean, I'm, I've heard of people you know, have been there. I know in theory it's happened. I don't know anybody it hasn't happened to. Is moral perfection, does that keep us out of the presence of God? Or is he speaking of the disciple who seeks first the righteousness of God, what God gives, and then as a manifestation, and then lives as a manifestation of that giving, of that righteousness? That's the powerful, that's the prayer. It is the righteous person who manifests giving, who manifests the righteousness of God that gets heard by God. It is not the selfish taker whose prayers are in those bowls. It is the prayers of the righteous. Now remember also the two bridges we built from the kingdom prayer of Matthew chapter 6 to the anti-kingdom that is coming as Jesus breaks the seals. The disciples, as disciples, we are taught to pray, thy kingdom come. That is our prayer that ascends to the throne of grace. But in Revelation 6, we see a different kingdom coming forth as the first seal is broken. A white horse brings about someone bent on conquering and conquest with force. But our kingdom comes into the, but God's kingdom comes into the life of any person, not by force, but by faith. We're not here to browbeat people 
with the gospel. We're not here just to yell at them about their sins. We're not here to condemn. We're here to rescue. Amen? I shouldn't have to ask for an amen there. Because that's who we are. We are supposed to be manifestations of God who gave so much for the purpose of rescuing others. The kingdom prayer, please hear this, is our greatest weapon against the anti-kingdom. I'm going to say that again. If you're one who has been caught up in eschatology, and listen, I love it. I'm a Bible prophecy teacher. I love the book of Revelation. I wouldn't be doing this if if I didn't. But if you're somebody who has been abused by Bible prophecy, and all you've been taught is to focus on all the big bad boogeyman that's coming and all the bad things, well, here's good news. Jesus has already given you everything you need to overcome that kingdom. The kingdom prayer is our greatest weapon against the anti-kingdom. And those who thunder their passionate desire for the Messiah's kingdom to come in their hearts are already fully equipped to deal with any anti-kingdom realities that may come. Whether those anti-kingdom realities happen today, someone says something mean to me, I have a tribulation I have to go through, whether it comes tomorrow, or whether, you know, some looming economical collapse or national let me tell you something about the great reset has nothing to do with me the only reset that I'm concerned about is what's going on in my heart and my mind and am I resetting my mind off of myself and onto him off of selfishness and onto selflessness because that is the only way I'm going to survive any kind of anti-kingdom reset And just because you figure out when it's coming, how it's coming, guess what? It's still coming. But you cannot take the reset of the restoration, the transformation of my mind in Christ Jesus if I'm a kingdom-seeking disciple. Kingdom prayer is our greatest weapon and ally. The next line of the kingdom disciples' prayer is also a remedy for what comes forth into this world after the breaking of the second seal. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is God's will done in heaven? His word always comes to pass. You can't think about the will of God and not talk about the word of God. The will of God always comes forth as the word of God. His will to create did not come to pass until he opened his mouth and said, let there be light. His will becomes his word. He spoke the creation into existence. The kingdom disciples prayer is not my will or my word, but thine be done. And if I'm really praying that, And I understand what I'm seeing in Revelation, that sometimes when I pray the right thing, Even though I pray the right thing, sometimes it looks like the wrong thing is happening. Come on. Oh, thy kingdom come. Wait a minute. Who's this guy on the white horse? That's not what I prayed for. Yeah, you did. You prayed that heaven and earth would displace 
and overcome all the anti-kingdoms of this world. And in order for that to happen, they've got to come forth. Your fault. You prayed it. Who wants to be a righteous, effective prayer now? (laughs) Those kingdom disciples who are already engaged in praise and prayer in submission to the word of God already have what is needed to face the lies, the deception, and the rhetoric of the anti-kingdom. You remember the second seal is broken, a fire red horse comes forth with someone who has the power to take peace from the earth, which results not just in nation against nation, but neighbor against neighbor slaying each other killing each other. He, they have the power to take peace from the earth. And if you remember, he's given a great sword. What does that mean? He's got a big mouth. He turns people against one another with his word. I don't have time to go there, but please take note of Ephesians 2, 13 and 14. For he himself is our peace who has made both groups into one and broken down the dividing wall. Do you know what happens when God's word, when he comes and preaches peace? Black people and white people start getting along. Because it stops being about black and white. Rich people and poor people suddenly do this. He, Jew and Gentile, suddenly by the word of God... The P, the animosity, all the things that divided us and separated us, he came to preach peace. What does the anti-kingdom come to do? To divide. And how does it happen? A lot of people with big mouths. He preaches when his word is taken heart in our life. And someone comes and tries to divide us with those things? Nope. Not happening. Not turning my heart against my neighbor because they're of a different color than I am or they hail, their family hails from a different part of the world than I do. Not happening. Why? Because I'm a kingdom seeker. And I want his word to be done in my life. So now let's build this bridge so that we as kingdom disciples can recognize all that we have come, have to overcome in the kingdoms of this world. So let's move on now to the third seal. Revelation chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. And when he broke the third seal, I heard the living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Now, there's a couple things I want to point out as we go through here, and there's there's way more than we have time to talk about. But I want to clarify something. I want you to take note that in each one of these first four seals, it is one of the four living beings that stand before the throne of God that call forth and say, come. And it's kind of interesting because the Greek word erkomai, which means come, can also mean go, which is very similar to the Hebrew word that can also mean come or go. Um, But here's what I want you to understand, because just like we kind of have these cartoonish ideas about angels and harps, sometimes when we read these, because of the negative things that come about because of them, we begin to see the four living beings, we begin to see these 
as demonic instead of angelic. Come on. We begin to, I mean, when you, see, when you think about the, the artistry renderings of the four horsemen that are coming, you don't think of something holy and good, do you? We, we flip the script and begin to see it as demonic instead of angelic. And I could go on all day about that because that ain't right. These seem to be the same four living beings that surround the throne. We'll deal with one difficulty with that next week. But the point is simply that this is not a presentation of the throne of God being usurped by the demonic. Zechariah 6 and Revelation 6 show us two key elements of their ministry, the four living beings. They, one, they seem to have directional dominion. This comes out of Zechariah chapter 6. It seems that those who stand at the four corners of the throne have some regency of some, like one corner of the earth. They, they seem to have some directional uh, regency or control in terms of the earth. Their, their, their assignment as angels. Secondly, they seem to have a spiritual and physical custody over the elements and things of this earth. Kind of like, I think it's Revelation 15 or 16, when you get to the angel of the waters. There's an angel in charge of the waters? Apparently. I haven't met him, but I like him. Let me just jump ahead and tell you why I like him. Because when one of the angels comes with a bowl of God's wrath to pour into the the waters that he's been in charge of, you know what he does? He steps back and says, basically, not my will, Lord. I mean, this is his charge. This is his territory. This is his assignment. And yet, he subjugates that to what God is doing. So these four living beings, they may have had custodial, directional dominion and custody over these areas, but they go forth, and, and, and I don't know exactly how it works, they, but they go forth to permit the rise of the anti-kingdom to prepare the way for its defeat and its demise. We are not being shown these things because we are going to be victims. We are shown these things because we are going to be victors. They're going to bring forth all that is necessary to facilitate the final destruction of the anti-kingdom. They are not the evil ones. They are the angelic ones. Are you with me? Change the cartoon. The imagery is incorrect. What am I trying to say? The throne of God is still in charge. Did you notice where the voice comes from for this one? And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures. Well, if the four living creatures are standing around the throne, where did the voice come from? The throne of God. This is not a picture of God losing control. It's the exact opposite. It is the picture of how much in control in the last days, in every day, he actually is. When I use the word anti-kingdom, I'm meaning everything that wars against you, both physical and spiritual, not just then, but now. It's all being set up for defeat. 
Now, here's the irony. The coming of this anti-kingdom that looks to weaken and defeat us is actually what strengthens us as the sanctified ones. The presence of the anti-kingdom is not evidence that he's lost control, but that he's fully in control. And hear this. Kingdom-seeking, praying disciples already know that. And if you don't know that now, because it's not your passion, it's not the driving force of your life now, then you will not be ready to interpret what's happening when that day comes, when there is maybe a specific final anti-kingdom that comes. I mean, but the truth of the matter is, if you don't know that now, you're not even prepared for tomorrow, let alone what's coming whenever. This third seal is really going to test and expose those who recite the kingdom prayer as opposed to those who rejoice and believe in the kingdom prayer. So it's about to get uncomfortable. Notice the Greek word zygon, the the Greek word zygon in this passage is what translates this idea that the rider on this horse is seen holding a pair of scales. The word Zygon actually has two definitions which are both completely appropriate to what's going on here. The actual dominant definition of the word is a yoke, you know, like a wooden yoke that goes over uh, the shoulders or the necks of like oxen that are pulling a plow. It's something you put on the neck and you put it on two oxen so that when you put this yoke across them, the two become one. And they begin to move in unity and in conjunction with one another. It's a very perfect picture for what he's showing us. The other definition of Zygon, as, and it's, as it's used here, is also the idea of scales. Pointing to something that has been weighed out and measured. Verse 6 points to both yoke and measure. And I would suggest to you that there are probably two things that we should understand that are going to be yoked together and work in conjunction. One is famine and one is economic collapse and crisis. Why? Because those two things go together. Both of these are likely the byproduct of the first two horsemen bringing war and death, uh, which always leads to famine and economic breakdown. These, These are the two, the lack of bread and economic breakdown. Well, what's economic breakdown? Well, it's that famine of that other kind of bread. (laughs) You know, the kind that you put in your back pocket. But verse 6 also points to the definition of Zygon as scales. And notice that there are two measurements that are provided, and this is where we get to the providential postponing of this message to this day. Right now, a week ago on Sunday, we celebrated first fruits, and with that day, we are aware that the counting of the Omer has begun. Now, for those of you who may not know what that means, it simply means that for the 50 days between the first day of the week after the Sabbath of Passover till Pentecost or Shavuot, there is the counting of the Omer. Each day is recognized as a certain day in the Omer. 
Now, this judgment is very interesting, especially in lieu of the fact that right now, that's what we're doing. When we say we're counting the omer, what we're really doing is we're measuring the omer. 50 days from Passover, another thing that's very interesting about this is that Passover celebrates the wheat harvest and, excuse me, the barley harvest. Did I get that? Did I flip those? Um, the wheat harvest, and then Shavuot celebrates the barley harvest. Well, isn't that interesting? That's exactly the measurement that is being used in the third seal. I was supposed to preach this two weeks ago, but we weren't in the counting of the Omer. I decided not to preach last Shabbat simply because I did five seders the week leading up to it and didn't think health-wise it would be a great idea. It was a good thing. I did show up that day and I listened. I know that Chris preached, I'm sure, a wonderful message, but I was kind of having the zombie apocalypse just trying to just, I was so vegged. What I'm saying is I think providentially God wants this message preached today. Now that we are in these 50 days, this counting of the Omer. So what is the, uh, an Omer? It is the amount of manna that Israel was told to collect on a daily basis while in the wilderness. Each person was allowed to collect one Omer of manna for each person in their household, which means the Omer was the daily bread by which the Lord would test Israel to see if they trusted him. Now, I, I, I'm going to, forgive me, but if you think counting the Omer means that you get up in the morning and go, today is number seven of the Omer. Okay, boy, I've satisfied that commandment. If that's all that is to you, you are not counting the Omer, you're just counting days. Now, I appreciate, you know, Chris puts out, you know, this is such and such day, I, I, because that keeps us focused on it, but let's know what we're focused on. We're focused on the test of the daily bread. Will we trust God? The anti-kingdom comes forth and creates circumstances that literally force a generation to trust God again for our daily bread. How do I know that? A quart of wheat for a denarius. Three quarts of barley for a denarius. What's a denarius? Some of your translations may actually uh, help try to define it for you. A day's wage. So, so what is a quart of wheat and what is three quarts of barley? It's your daily bread. Now, do you see the combination of the famine and the economy? A man will work an entire day and just have enough to buy his daily bread. And that's the way the anti-kingdom wants it. They want you dependent on them, their economy, their priorities, their passions, your daily bread. But the kingdom disciple is already prepared for this because we have been taught to trust and pursue kingdom righteousness, which is what God has already promised to provide. The kingdom prayer is simply this, give us this day our daily bread. Are, 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 you, are you crossing these bridges with me? Are you understanding? These first four seals 
are the antithesis of the Lord's Prayer. And the reason we don't need to be afraid of them is because in the Lord's Prayer, we have been given the kingdom truth to overcome it. The kingdom disciples already prepared for this. You see, kingdom disciples seek and trust the righteousness of our king to provide our daily bread. And my friends, this isn't just a line we recite. It's a truth we declare and we rejoice in and we believe in. Why would I even ask him for my daily bread if I don't believe he's a good heavenly father? Jesus uses a call for Homer in Matthew chapter 7. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you for everyone who receives Ask, receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. For what man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf of bread, you would give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If, then, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets." You want to be Torah observant? Do righteousness. This is Torah observance. Trusting that your heavenly father is a good God and he's going to provide. And then because you know you're going to receive what he's already decided to give, then turning around and giving as you have freely received. That's the law and the prophets. So now... I want to share a little something God dropped in my heart, and I I hate it because, quite honestly, it probably relates to me before it relates to you. Back in 2020, in January, before COVID hit, my wife had a great idea. I totally blame her for this. (laughs) Let's go get a dog, she said. And we did. And his name is Dexter. And he's nuts. He's extra in every single way that a dog can be extra. And we love him. But here is a hard truth. And I hope it's a truth that will be emblazoned in your heart, a question that will serve as a hedge in your heart as the Lord has been using it in mine. You see, there's something about my dog that I never do. I never doubt the love of my dog. I never wonder if the next morning, if he's going to want to spend time with me. Maybe the day before I didn't have as much, I just came home tired, I didn't have time to play with him. I never go to bed going, man, I wonder if my dog is still going to like me in the morning. No, I go to bed knowing this, the the best thing about my dog's day is being with me. He makes me aware of that when he crawls up in bed and wakes us up. (laughs) I, I never get up in the morning or go to bed wondering if because I had a bad day yesterday or didn't spend enough time with him yesterday, if his opinion of me is suddenly gonna change. I mean, his mercies are new every morning. That's right, I went there. 
He is always thrilled to see me. Nothing is more important than being with me. And even when I'm so tired, I can't play with him. And I don't understand this. Getting his bone, if he, well, dad's obviously just not going to play with me. I'm just going to get my bone. I'm going to plop down his feet because somehow this bone tastes so much better if I wedge it between his feet and I chew it with him. (laughs) Being with him is better in every way. I don't come home from work at night. I don't drive home wondering, is my dog going to be happy to see me? He's going to be there at the door waiting, and he's going to run to tell Tanya he's home, and then he's going to run back and be nothing but over-the-top excited that I'm home. I never doubt my D-O-G. Oh, you know where this is going. It's getting all kinds of uncomfortable. But that which I will not do to my D-O-G, I do to my G-O-D all the time. I I didn't spend as much time with him yesterday. I was just overwhelmed. I had stuff, too much going on at work. I just, I wanted to stop time and pray, but I was just, I mean, I was hitting the ground running. He's probably mad at me. Tomorrow morning, he'll probably say, you know what, I'm just done. Folks, and I know not all of you have dogs, but the behavior of dogs is well enough, known well enough for you to make the application. Do you trust your dog more than your God? I'm going to say it again because I, I, I want it. I want it to go in your ears I want it to anchor to your mind as a memory, and at some point in time today, you ought to just say it out loud, do I trust my dog more than my God? Because I'm going to tell you right now, trusting God for your daily bread means that you have the same faith in your God that you do in your dog. You don't doubt that he's the one who's going to be there to provide. You don't have to go, well, I wonder if he's just going to let me starve today. I wonder if he's just going to turn a deaf ear. I wonder if I'm going to go running to God, Father, and he's going to go, nope, not today. You could have done that yesterday, but you, now, let's be fair. I do know some dogs are a little moody, but their little moods take about that long to get over. Do you understand my point? The kingdom disciple doesn't have to beg God for his daily bread because he already knows that God has promised to give it. Jesus isn't asking us to come beg for something from a father who doesn't want to give it. That's why Jesus tells this call to Homer. You know that wicked dads, evil dads, fallen dads, imperfect men still know how to give good gifts to your children, yet you doubt your heavenly father. And I'm telling you, folks, if that's the way you're, where you're at, you're a sitting duck for the coming anti-kingdom. But if you're praying and believing the kingdom prayer, Lord, give me this day. My daily bread. What do you mean my daily bread? Or our daily bread? It's almost like it's already mine. Yeah, it's already yours. You know why? He's promised to give it. So what are you counting this week? 
You see, if I'm a kingdom seeker, I know his powerful presence is enough to sustain me. If I'm a righteousness seeker, I already know his compassionate heart will provide what I need. He will not only provide my daily bread, he is my daily bread. And sometimes, rather than meeting all my financial needs and making all the stress go away, he says, you know what I think I'd rather do? I think I'm just going to come sit with you because being with you is the best part of his day. Is it yours? When the religious leaders ask, well, what is the work you want, that we should do? He says, believe in the one whom he sent. John chapter six. I mean, we might as well stay with the sixes. Matthew 6, Revelation 6, John 6. Jesus says, believe in the sent bread from heaven. Because kingdom disciples who do that are already fully equipped. Now the third seal goes on though, and it includes this admonition. And do not damage or harm the oil and the wine. That's kind of a weird thing to say, isn't it? Like, walk up and kick the wine barrel, or I, I don't know what that means. The word that we translate as damage or harm is adikeo, and it comes from adikos, which literally means to act unjustly, hear this church, to do unrighteousness. Now, if righteousness is giving, what is the doing of unrighteousness? Taking, keeping. If righteousness is selflessness, what is unrighteousness? Selfishness. Man, I love God's word. What does he say in the midst of this third seal? Don't do injustice. Don't do unrighteousness. In the midst of these difficult moments, when your resources may be limited, don't make it about you. Selfishness will always lead to injustice. That's why I had you stand today to pray for somebody else. It's not that God doesn't want to hear your prayers for your needs. But the problem is we get so consumed with ourselves. And the minute we do that, we stop fulfilling the law. We stop being biblically observant people. The prayer goes on, give us this day our daily bread is followed by this call to justice and righteousness in our lives. It's traditionally translated one of two ways, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors, or forgive us our trespasses as we have forgiven those who trespassed against us. You know what? I love them both. Because righteousness gives in the form of forgiveness, whether it's physical debt or spiritual debt. The two versions both point to a debt and a choice we have and how we respond to that. Do not do unrighteousness with the oil and wine. Do not do unrighteousness. You know, one of the ways that I know that many in the church have not understood the revelation of Jesus Christ is because of how they react to it. 
I want you to think for just a moment about how many prophecy teachers are out there online telling you to go dig your hole, to prepare, buy gold, buy wheat, you know, get your go bag. Now listen, I'm not saying that there's no wisdom in some degree of preparation. But my friends, are you planning to provide your own daily bread? Come on, church. Is that why the revelation is being shown to us? So that we can prepare to do selfishness? To take care of our own needs? You see, the message of the kingdom of God is a currency of giving and forgiving. It's a message uh, and a life of trusting the king for everything I need because his righteousness gives me what I need. It's a message of giving forgiveness for debt and trespass because that is what I needed and that's what I freely received. Don't damage the oil and the wine. Isn't it interesting that those two things are symbols of the Holy Spirit. Oh, I'm so gifted. I mean, I mean I'm filled with the Spirit. I, I've got this gift. Are you? Because if your mouth is doing injustice and unrighteousness, if you are undermining the body of Christ, if you're undermining leaders, if, if, if all you can say about somebody else in the body of Christ is how they should have done it this way or that way or whatever, stop damaging the oil and the wine. You were given the Holy Spirit to do ministry to others, and that doesn't mean being their judge. All of this, Matthew, go back to Matthew 6, the, the righteousness that thou shalt not judge, all of that, it's all right there together. The pursuit of the kingdom and his righteousness is freely given, giving what I have received and using what I've received to minister to others. And if I'm selfishly undermining them, that's not justice. That's not righteousness. The Lord's been so gracious to teach me about his goodness. When I was a young man, sophomore year in Bible college, I did a summer ministry internship in Markle, Indiana. A very small farming community. I was living out in, on one of the farms. I was driving into work one day in my Ford Granada. And I looked over at some of the wildflowers growing along the side of the road. And the Holy Spirit instantly brought to mind, see how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory was clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the lily of the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the furnace, how much more will he clothe you? And I'm like, oh Lord, that is, that is so, man, I'm just driving down the road. Lord, that is just so beautiful. Thank you, Jesus. Kadum, kadum. Lord, I just give you praise. Kadum, kadum. Pretty soon, me and the lilies of the field, we were very close. Because I was now broke down on the side of the road. 
Like, Lord, um... But in that moment, I said, you know what, Lord? I hear you. You've got this. I got a whole new transmission out of it. Didn't pay a dime. God's people did righteousness. Before I even needed it, he told me, don't forget, I've got this. Let me try to wrap this up. I conclude today with some difficult questions for your consideration. For many who read the revelation of the coming anti-kingdom, it terrifies them. But that's only the case if you have not encountered and embraced the kingdom of God. In the Sermon on the Mount, before Jesus teaches us to ask, seek, and knock, he warns the kingdom seekers with these words. Do not give what is holy to the dogs. I love my crazy dog, Dexter. But if I don't learn to trust my God more than I trust my dog, well, at the end of Revelation, there's a kingdom of the dogs outside the camp. The people who trusted their dogs and never learned to trust their God are on the outside. Don't give to dogs that which is holy. Give your faith, your life, your trust, your provision, everything God has given you, give it to him. So here are some questions. Are you giving what is holy to the dogs? Are you living a life doubting God while claiming to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Do you recite or rejoice in the kingdom disciples' prayer for your daily bread? There's a lot of people that can recite it. And I I say this again, parents, we're teaching your kids how to say it. You'd better be teaching them how to pray it. Do you feel like you need to guilt trip God into providing you things when things get tough? Or do you come to him expecting that he is already in the process of providing everything you need? And beyond that, he is everything you need. When you come to those times of lack, when you come to those times, did you, did you ever just come to that place where like, you know what, Lord, I have this need, I have that need. I, you know what? I just want to be with you. I, I just want to come and sit at your feet. Do I expect to receive what I am unwilling to give? You know, there's always people in the church that... Uh, <laughs> require an extra amount of grace and demand it, and they tend to be the very same people who absolutely refuse to give it. I mean, you're supposed to put up with all of my inconsistencies, all my weirdness, all of my, but the minute, hey, how about, I'm just as weird as you. I've got my good days and bad days too. 
You might catch me on a bad day. Can I have some grace? Are you willing to give that which you demand to receive? You see, these are questions designed, this is about do we really understand what we're praying? Do I lift the yoke of debt off of people or do I impose scales of my own justice? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, with the same measure you use, so it will be measured to you. Are you speaking life into people or are you speaking death? See, this is all stuff we learn from the kingdom prayer. Here we go. Pull your toes in. Do I count the omer and keep the tithe? Do I want my daily bread and demand that God provide everything I need but begrudge him with my offering? This is what counting the, you know, counting the omer means checking my measure. How am I judging others? Am I lifting yokes or putting them on them? Am I extending grace or... My friends, the anti-kingdom we face now and the one that is coming is already defeated by kingdom seekers who pray and rejoice and believe the disciples' prayer. Kingdom disciples who trust the Father for their daily bread. Kingdom disciples who give and do righteousness to others as they have freely benefited from the righteousness they have received. Paul had a few things to say about this, and with these words I close. And the worship team can come back. Listen to what Paul says about righteousness. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Let me just insert there. You know why? Because God never begrudged what he gave for you. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his, and his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing through many thanksgiving to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God 
for your obedience to the, your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them all. What is he saying? People will give thanks to God because you chose to do righteousness. Because you chose not to damage the oil and the wine. While they also by prayer on your behalf yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. We've got, a, we've got some more days of the Omer to count, don't we? And may this be a time when we allow the Lord to measure our hearts. May this be a time when we check ourselves. Am I demanding my daily bread? Or am I trusting God for my daily bread? Am I using my gifts for his glory? Am I counting the omer and keeping the tithe? Does my giving reflect my trust? We're going to sing, you know, we, I, I asked some time back that we would add a song at the end of our service as a response song. Because I don't like to get on a road and go nowhere. I want this time to be a season when, when you take what you've heard, what the Lord has seasoned in your heart and soul and mind, and just to give you some time to think about it. And so the worship team is going to lead us in a song. And, uh, you know, maybe you stand and sing and maybe you sit and pray. Maybe you contemplate the words. Maybe you just take some time to ask the Lord, Lord, have I been guilty of trusting my dog more than you? Have I been given, giving to the dogs that which is holy? But don't forget, if you have that kind of uncomfortable moment where you say, yeah, maybe I've done that, guess what? Being with you is still the best part of his day. And he'll be there to greet you with arms open wide and say, yeah, that was kind of dumb, wasn't it? Aha, now you know. There's no condemnation. But as we sing and as we worship and as we rejoice, let us let our worship and our prayers ascend as the incense before God's throne.